Hey people, welcome back to Accidental Gods, to the place where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. By now, I hope you're familiar with the concept that evolution happens under moments of intense pressure. This moment is as intense as we ever want it to get, and we're ripe for a new evolutionary step. We think that evolutionary step can be one of consciousness, consciously chosen. But we need to understand the ways to do that. We've looked at how we might reawaken into connection with the all that is, and we're partway through looking at how we can grow into coherence, how we can come into alignment with ourselves and free ourselves from the ego and judgment and self-judgment and judgment of others and our projections and our fears and everything that gets in the way of us being the best that we can be. So let's crack on and continue to look more deeply into how we do the growing into coherence. So four seems to be a key number. I quite like three, but hey, four seems to be the number that we get to. And there are four obvious types of contemplative, meditative, mindfulness practice. And the first and the most obvious of these, the one that has been tagged with mindfulness in our kind of meta-mindfulness era, is what we call close focus attention. Then there's open focus, and then there's heart-based, and then there's intent-based. I don't think we'll get through all of these today. But the close focus attention is the one that gets all the mindfulness headlines, because this is a really basic Buddhist concept that's been made accessible to everybody. This is when we sit, or we can lie down, but the tendency to fall asleep is quite high, so sitting is better. And we let our attention rest on a single point of focus. And that's it. Okay, that's more or less it. Because actually, this works best if we can cultivate a feeling that goes with it. We are feeling beings. Our amygdalas like feeling things. And if we don't give our amygdala something to feel, it's going to feel stuff on its own. And what beginner mindfulness people find is that frustration and resentment and I am so bored with this, I cannot bear it another second, are the feelings that arise quite fast. So one of the things that I would really like us to do in Accidental Gods, and I would really like you to take on board, is that we can choose what we feel. But it takes practice. This is back to the awakening into connection. It takes practice to build a connection with the other than human world, and it takes practice to build the feelings that we want. What fires together, wires together, and if things don't fire together, they don't wire. But we can and need to build these pathways. And the feeling that millennia of Buddhist practice have suggested works, and I think they're right, because frankly, who am I to suggest they're wrong, is joyful curiosity. And we'll spend a lot of time later down the line looking at how we can help that to arise. But start now, start having thoughts of what does joyful curiosity feel like to you? And how could you help it to arise? So that if you can come to your sitting and your close focus practice with that essence of joyful curiosity, so that let's suppose we're looking at a breath because that is the thing that is always there. It's got a lot of different components. It's got the sensation of air moving in through my nostrils. It's got the 
temperature change of it hitting the back of my throat. It's got the feeling sensation, the actual physical muscular movement of my ribs moving up and my diaphragm moving down, and that's only the in-breath. So there's lots of components of breathing that I can watch all of them or I can just watch one of them. If I can watch that one with that sense of joyful curiosity of, my goodness, it's a breath, wow, and it went out again, and oh my goodness, there's another one, wow, then it becomes an act of joyful curiosity. And polyvagal theory tells us that it is a physical, physiological impossibility to feel joyful curiosity and at the same time feel frustration and all of the other stuff that we might feel as we do our sitting. You can't hold both of those together. You just can't. It doesn't work. Please don't try. Just take that one as read. So one of the things that I really want to do is to build a feeling practice along with our actual practice. Build the habits of that. Really dive down deep into what feelings are, how they arise, and how we can help to shape them. Because I think that's really core to this being the best that we can be. So that's close focus. Obviously, you can pick anything to be the focus of your attention. You can pick a candle flame or a leaf, and we have made meditations based on both of those. You can sit and stare at your thumb. You can pick anything, as long as it's a single point. Because what we want is the practice of coming back to that single point, noticing when we go off into thought, which always happens. Oh gosh, there was a thought. And I get to practice bringing my mind back again. And the act of bringing my attention back to this single point of focus is in itself a process that is wiring together as we fire it. So it becomes easier because the process of that becomes something that becomes juicier and bigger and swifter and has feelings attached to it that we learn to like. My experience of this, actually all of the practices, is that in and of themselves they become addictive. You have to get over the hump where they're not addictive in the beginning. But once you're over there, really, you'll want to keep practicing. I promise. Okay, so anything else to say about that? Yeah, one of my early teachers told me we we don't practice meditation to become better people. We practice to become better meditators, which is more or less what I've just said. You know, what fires together, wires together. But I think we also do it to become better people. I think the path to becoming the best of ourselves lies through understanding how to bring our attention to something and hold it there. I think that's an essential life skill for where we want to go. So we will be talking a lot about this. So let's move on to the second of the types of practice, which is open focus meditation, which is remarkably similar to close focus meditation, except that instead of a single thing, our breath or a candle flame or a thumbnail, we extend our awareness to everything around us. So the close focus tends to be done with our eyes shut and the open focus tends to be done with our eyes open and all of our awareness open so that we become fully aware of everything, our breath and 
the view from the window and the leaves moving in the breeze and the fact that it's almost time to go and lock the chickens up, that's a thought, but it's still out there. And the cat outside the door and the dog moving around in the yard and the colour of the floor and the microphone in front of me. I am aware of everything. And I am aware of everything as it arises in the moment, which is really important. There was an experiment done when the Dalai Lama got together with the guys who have MRIs. I can't remember exactly where it's written, but it stuck with me really clearly, partly because people started using it as an example. But they got two types of meditators, the ones who had done the close focus, a Zen Buddhist who'd done close focus for, you know, eight hours a day for 40 years, and one of Trungpa Rinpoche's lot who'd done the open focus for the same amount of time. So these were people for whom the firing and the wiring had been going on a very long time. They were very, very good at this, way past the 10,000 hours it takes to become expert. That's a bit of a fib, but anyway, many, many, many thousands of hours of this. And they wired them both up, I think, to EEGs and put them in the same room. And then they dropped an iron bar. I don't quite know why they did that, except that that's what Freud did to completely abuse little Hans to get him to the point where he hated horses. Um, Don't go back and read that. It's deeply distressing that this was done in the name of science. Anyway, they drop an iron bar. It makes a big, loud noise. And for both of these people... The first EEG goes all over the place. They're deep in meditation and there's this great big clang next to them and they just go, what the? And the EEG goes everywhere. And they keep doing this (laughs) because that's what physiologists do. And over a period of time, and not very long, I don't know how many, but let's say 10 repetitions, the Zen Buddhists, his, I think it was a he, the EEG judder, becomes less pronounced each time until by the 10th time, say, it's not there. Basically, the iron bar no longer exists. We have focused so much on our breath that it is the only thing in the universe for us and the iron bar just isn't a thing anymore. Which is quite an accomplishment. I couldn't do that. That isn't to say that I'm particularly good at this, but I'm sure I couldn't. The open focus... The person for whom reality is arising new in every moment and for whom awareness is everywhere, the EEG was exactly the same every single time. It was as if it had never happened before. It was new in the moment, each time, a whole new experience. Which is, for me, every bit as impressive as the, oh, iron bars don't exist anymore. And each side of this used it as a, look, our side is better. And they're wrong because MRI work shows us that each of these is entraining different parts of our brains. And, hard question of consciousness aside, we need to exercise both of these. We need to be able to bring our attention to a very fine point of focus. And we also need to be able to walk out in the world and be absolutely present, balanced, on the knife edge of the moment such that every moment is new and fresh and we are open to whatever comes. We need this for when we're doing our connecting to the world. We need both of these, the close focus, because that is how we hone our intention. And human intention is one of 
the most powerful forces on the planet. And intention is the focus of attention. When we can focus our attention to intention, we can do almost anything. I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But we also need to be able to go out and walk on the hill or walk down the street in the city or sit on the train or the bus or stand under the shower or go for a walk by the ocean or whatever we do and be fully present, absolutely present, only in the moment. We need both of these, therefore we need to practice both of these. The open focus, I think we best practice in sitting practice in the beginning, but the good news is we can take it on the road quite fast. You can go out and go for a walk and practice being fully present, but you need to know what it feels like. And to really know what it feels like, you have to have started the firing and the wiring, sitting in your wherever is your sacred space where you do your sits. Okay, so time is moving on. We definitely are not going to get on to the other two kinds of meditation. One other thing that I wanted to say was, why else we might be doing this? We're doing this because we want to become the best of ourselves. And I will devote lots and lots of other podcasts to the physiology of what these things do, because I think it's really interesting. But two, just to take home. One is an experiment that was done five, six years ago, I think. Um, where a group of college students was taken, split into two volunteers, one lot pumped weights, one hand lifting a weight, I can't remember how many times, but whatever the experimenters thought was going to create a significant increase in muscle mass over the period time of the experiment. The other half sat and imagined pumping the weight for the same period of time, every day, over the period of time of the experiment which requires that they picked people who were able to do that imagining for a sustained length of time, let's say 10 minutes. That's quite a lot of imagining weights. So we have to probably suppose that because they picked random college students, some of them were not so good at that. And yet, when they came to measure the increase in muscle mass between the two groups, the ones who had done the imagining had an 80% increase in muscle mass compared to the ones who had lifted the actual weights. So the amount of muscle mass that the actual weightlifters created is counts as 100%, and the imaginers created muscle mass that was 80% of that. And it works the same with playing the piano. You take one group and you give them some piano scales to play that they haven't done before, so these are novice piano players, but they can do it. And a particular part of your brain that is linked to manual dexterity, increases. The ones who were set to just imagining playing those scales, that part of their brain increased around 80%. And I would be really interested to redo that experiment with people who were very, very good at focusing their intention because I think it would come clearer and better and closer to unity. Okay, so the other thing that I wanted to tell you was a study that I have heard about, but I have not yet managed to track down a reference, and I'm not even sure it's been published yet. But it came firsthand from a neuroscientist at a hospital not too far away from here who is showing stroke patients images of what their brain looks like on MRI. So here is your brain, here is the bit that the stroke has affected. This is what it looks like. And over here is a normal brain. This is what this looks like. We would like your brain to look like this. And apparently, 
they can do it. I want to find out, you know, to what degree, to what percentage, with what sort of pathology to begin with. But this is people who've probably never seen an MRI before. They certainly don't know what the deep anatomy and physiology and neuronal structures look like. Show you a picture of this as your brain, and here is a picture of what we consider to be a normal brain. Make yours look like this. Human intent is an extraordinary thing. We have absolutely no idea what we can do if we can learn to hone it. And part of the practice that we are endeavouring to support in accidental gods is the honing of intent. So I'm going to leave you with that thought. What fires together wires together. We can hone our intent. We can build emotional focus. We can live such that every moment is new and fresh and we are clear within it and able to connect and ask. Okay, so that's enough for today, I think. We'll carry on looking at the remaining two parts of Growing Into Coherence in the next podcast, podcast number five. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening this far. Thank you to Caro C for sound production and for the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thank you to Faith Tilleray for doing all the techno stuff and for being the sounding board and the originator of many of the ideas and concepts that we're presenting. If you want to know more about us, we're at accidentalgods.life and at accidentalgods on social media. And if you like us, please do subscribe on the podcast app of your choice, give us a handful of stars and a review so that Google finds us, And mainly, tell anybody that you know that you think would resonate with this, anyone who gets it, anybody who wants the world to be a different place and themselves wants to be the best that they can be within it. Because the worst that can happen is that we become the best of ourselves. And the best that can happen is that together, the whole that we become is so much greater than the sum of our individual parts. So I'll leave you with that thought, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you.